Hello, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I am really delighted to be able to spend some time with a an incredible researcher, scholar, friend, um, Dr. Judson Brewer, who I had the wonderful opportunity of hanging out with um, a couple years ago or so. I will introduce, as usual, with a somewhat formal um, bio, and then we're going to launch into what I am sure will be a very compelling um, discussion on the, the roots of addiction, because um, Judson is one of the world's leading authorities on this topic. So here we go. So Judson Brewer, MD, PhD, is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with the scientific research therein. The Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University Center for Mindfulness, he has developed clinically proven app-based training to help people with smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. So, Judson, thanks so much for taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to check in with us. I, I'm still very... Um, reflect very fondly of the time I met you when you were out here in Boulder after you presented at Naropa University. I, you know, Justin gave a, con a lecture in the Varela lecture series at Naropa. And then we had a really wonderful opportunity to um, play in Jordan Qualia's uh, virtual reality lab, where um, in addition to some of the stuff that Jordan and I had worked on, we, we basically just had a whopping good time playing with some VR games. Um, and so <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it, was, it was a total hoot. It was a total hoot. Um, and so, gosh, there, there's so much I want to unpack with you. But I, I want to start with something that hit me just this morning that we can probably dovetail back into. I started watching a little bit of the, the Mueller uh, you know, uh, report, uh, the testimony of this happening on the Hill. And one thing that, that I do that, that we could – talked very very briefly about that ties into um, honestly uh, I, I think a very skillful way of working with addiction is what I do when I'm listening to something charged like that whether it was the Kavanaugh hearings or this morning the Mueller hearings or sometimes I'll do it and again I, I don't mean to offend anybody but I'm politically uh, inclined as a Democrat so sometimes what I'll do is I'll watch something like Fox News and Sean Hannity as a way to work with this as well <laughs> um, is, is I actually watch, I'll start the event, it gets me all sucked in, I get all, in a really deep sense, kind of non-lucid, and this is what I want to unpack with you, Johnson, I get swept up, and then what I'll do is I'll, I'll hit the mute button, and I'll watch the display without sound, and I have found it to be a really interesting exercise, and also a bit of a metaphor um, for things, in fact, like meditation, where... Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to my meditation students as like, well, watch your mind without sound. Um, let the display arise. Notice your tendency to get caught up, swept up in it. And in the context of um, our nightclub, watch how we get non-lucid to it. But I, you talk about it so beautifully, Judson, with this idea of functional decoupling. Um, and so whether we launch with that or whether we just launch with um, – the extraordinary practicality of your work and how it's based uh, not only in, in rigorous science, but also conjoined, and this is what attracts me to it so deeply, with uh, Eastern principles of, of thought and meditation, Buddhism and the like. Um, mm. so, so, yeah, I would say let's launch with that and then we can get pragmatic afterwards. Perfect. Okay, cool. 
So talk to us a little bit about the importance of functional decoupling. It sounds like such an intimidating term, but I think when people understand it, they realize that, whoa, this is something that's really user-friendly that can save me a heap of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it, it can be an intimidating concept, but basically the way, the way that we look at this is that we can get caught up in our experience. And so you can think of that as, as unconscious coupling, <laughs> so to speak, where we inadvertently get sucked into something like, you know, oh, I can't believe that person has that view as in it, they don't, or, oh, that person shares the same view that I do. And then we start ranting about somebody else that doesn't share the same view. So there are many, many ways that we can get caught up in our you know, basically in ourselves. And, and a very similar way to, simple way to think of this is we take things personally. We say, yeah. oh, you know, oh, I can relate to that or I can't relate to that. We hold on to the things that we can relate to and we push away the things that we can't relate to. And both of those have an energetic quality of movement as in hold on, pull toward and push away. So there's, there's this push and pull that comes with that. And that is really the root of addiction that push and pull. I couldn't agree more. In fact, you know, one of the things I wanted to um, play with you with a little bit here, Judson, and I will just give readers the, the briefest sense of your remarkable book, um, Creating Mind, where in part one, I, I just want to give them a sense of what you talk about and, and then kind of zip it down into the foundations, which is you talk about addiction to technology, addiction to ourselves, addiction to distraction, addiction to thinking and, and um, addiction or addicted to love. And to me, when I cascaded through these chapters, which again, I found extraordinarily um, provocative and practical, I started to look just like you were talking about here. And this is what I really want to unpack with you is like, okay, what's the common denominator? What, what are, what is the fundamental ingredient that underlies all these addictions? And honestly, I think you just nailed it is, is this addiction to movement um, in so many ways, I know my teacher, Pula Perpiche, uh, once said that, you know, we have a, a very foundational um, habit issue around movement. He doesn't use the word addiction, but it, you can certainly join it with that, that our fundamental addiction is not so much to stillness, but it is to movement. And, and the way I play with this, Judson, and this is I'd love to unpack this with you, is that this is, you know, kind of a, a way to explore uh, non-lucidity because, you know, when we met last year and what I'm riffing on now is how we can use the principles, the phenomenology of non-lucidity in the dream state um, as a way to understand how it is that we go non-lucid to um, experience altogether. And the notion that you write about in your scientific papers, this uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, the swept up continuum, um, how it how it is that that we just get seduced, we get hooked into movement. It's almost as if consciousness itself is a kind of movement motion detector. And this is one of the things that really comprises non-lucidity in the dream state, is or even in the meditative state. You know, thought, um, as you know, in the Vajrayana language, is actually referred to as movement of mind. Mm. And we we get swept up into this movement of mind. We get hooked into it. And so, talk a little bit more about this kind of foundational addiction that we have to, to, to movement or motion altogether. Yeah, so let's talk experientially and also we can talk a little bit about some of the 
consistent neuroscience findings that are in the field. Uh, and maybe start with the latter. There are, you know, when I was looking through the literature to find commonalities around addictions, you know, people have studied everything from cocaine to heroin to gambling to chocolate. <laughs> you know? And the only consistent brain region or network that seems to be activated when people are shown pictures or, or cues or even fed chocolate uh, is the default mode network, which is a self-referential brain network. So it, you know, this comes up perhaps as a coincidence or perhaps not because this network gets activated whenever we are relating to something. And specifically, my lab was really interested in determining what that relationship means. And so we did some neurophenomenologic studies to line up people's subjective experience with their brain activity, and in particular in a hub of the default mode network called the posterior cingulate cortex. Mm -hmm. And we used experienced meditators because they tend to be able to report on their own subjective experience better than folks that haven't been paying attention to their subjective experience. Yeah. And we found something really interesting, which was that the more caught up people were in their experience, the more their default mode network was active, and in particular, mm -hmm. the posterior cingulate. So things like, uh, you know, being swept away or identified with, uh, you know, activate the posterior cingulate when we're regretting the past, when we're worrying about the future. So getting caught up in rumination with depression or perseveration with anxiety, those activate the posterior cingulate cortex. When we're feeling guilty, you know, all of these things activate the posterior cingulate cortex. And what we found was not only was that brain region activated when people are getting caught up, but even when they were trying to do things. For example, there was somebody <laughs> in one of our studies who, you know, he was looking at the, we were showing people feedback from their brain activity in real time. Right. And he said, oh, you know, I, I tried to look at it harder. <laughs> How, you know, awareness is awareness. Awareness isn't moving. It's just awareness. And so this person in that movement of trying actually was activating his posterior cingulate cortex, which, you know, when at the end of the day, what it turns out is it's it's this contracted or closed down quality that comes with force or comes with getting caught up in a craving or comes with getting becoming identified with something or that comes with being caught up in worry. And so that that contraction from a phenomenologic standpoint is a marker of, oh, I am here because this contraction says this is me as compared to just awareness, which is, you know, just awareness. <laughs> so that contracted quality kind of gives people an identification around, okay, this is me. And then outside of this contraction is the rest of the world. So when people let go, when they were deep in concentration, when they were practicing loving kindness, when they were moving outside into a more open quality of experience and just resting in awareness, their posterior cingulate cortex was getting really, really quiet. And so it seems that this movement in particular that's correlated with a subjective sense of self is this movement you know, of this contracted quality where yeah. you know, we're yeah. holding on or something is threatening us. 
so we contract around, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like that. And so we're going to kind of protect ourselves. And there's this contraction that comes with that as compared to when we're not identified or when we're not taking something personally, there's more of an open quality when we're just resting in awareness. And I would guess this winds up pretty well with the lucid state. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, this goes so deep, you have no idea. I mean, so many things to say here, Justin. One is that my favorite running definition of meditation these days, and I'm sure this will resonate with, with your experience as a practitioner, is meditation is habituation to openness. And then wow, what, what, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, really, it really goes a long way. And especially when you realize that openness is a synonym for emptiness, then it really takes on a lot of chops. But, mm. but to me, the reason I find this so compelling is that when we're, when we're engaged in the practices of meditation, and again, um, this is one of the u truly unique contributions of your work, is this joining of um, science with uh, meditative tradition, is that by being invited to stay open, which is what meditation uh, obviously does, um, in a certain sense, it creates a heightened contrast medium. It, it, it allows us to therefore see qualities of uh, contraction that we haven't seen before. And so it's, mm -hmm. all, it's, it's simultaneously um, diagnostic and prescriptive. It will show us how it is that we continually refer experience onto self, therefore actually generating the sense of self from that very um, reference and contraction. And therefore it's, it's prescriptive in that it also shows us then what we could possibly explore to reduce the, the pinch. And it's like I sometimes say, you know, we're, we're constantly pinching ourselves and looking elsewhere for the prick in both senses yeah. of the word, but we're fundamentally, we're the ones that are doing this. And so this quality okay. of mood, oh, go ahead, please. I was going to just add one piece. I'm going to, I would suggest that it's diagnostic, prescriptive, and it's also the treatment. Oh, beautiful. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because here, and we can, we can get into this now or later, but basically our brains learn based on rewards, you know, cause and effect. So we do something and we either get rewarded or punished. And if we're, if we're rewarded, we do it again. If we're punished, we stop doing it, right? This is positive and negative reinforcement, the old, oldest, uh, most well-characterized learning process in science. And actually the Buddhists <laughs> figured this out 2,500 years ago in what they called dependent origination. But that reward piece, if we just simply look at what it feels like to be closed versus yeah. what it feels like to be open, it's a no-brainer for our brain. Our brains, you know, they invariably pick open because it feels better. So not only diagnostic and prescriptive, but perhaps even curative. Yeah. I, I might not go that far, but, you know, moving in the direction of helping us uh, treat the affliction of self. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, and really, to me, it's like, you know, in the Yogacara um, tradition, they talk about the, the, the teaching on the eight consciousnesses. And I, I have found that, Judson, to be one of the most compelling kind of uh, phenomenological descriptions of what's taking place here. I'm, I, it, it's one of the doctrinal templates for things like lucid dreaming because it's basically a very subtle nuanced description of the dualistic mind and and in that description um, it fits in just perfectly here the the bad boy consciousness is is the seventh and these consciousnesses of course are not you know eight different minds or eight different consciousnesses they're just eight different functions of consciousness and the seventh consciousness so to speak is the bad boy and and the reason that ties in so beautifully here is that it is in fact 
that's the aspect of, of awareness mind, confused mind that is constantly flickering um, and appropriating experience back to self, um, back to some illusory home base. And, and so um, by, again, exploring the meditative path, we can start to see this, just like you're saying, this kind of painful flickering, this painful referencing, this pinching that takes place every time we refer experience back to self. Um, and, so, and so maybe talk to us a little bit more about how this strange process um, becomes so addicting. Why, why, is it that, why is it that it feeds, I would say, the egoic agenda so successfully? I mean, what, what's going on there? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So I think it goes back to what this process was set up for, and it was actually set up for survival. And in particular, it would, helps us survive by helping us remember where food is. So it helps us lay down what's described as context-dependent memories. So, for example, you need a trigger behavior and a reward for the necessary and sufficient components of reward-based learning. So if you see food, you eat the food, then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. We use the same process to avoid danger. See danger, avoid danger, live to tell the tale or whatever. <laughs> so that reward-based learning process, is there's, there's nothing in there about pleasure. <laughs> it's about survival. Now, the way that works with this dopamine spritz is it fires when we see something or learn something unexpected. So something that we hadn't, we didn't already know. So we see a food source and we hadn't known that food source before. So our brain fires off this dopamine and says, remember that. And then when we're hungry, it fires off a dopamine spritz in anticipation of receiving that reward. Not oh, when wow. we get it, but yeah. in anticipation of. And that anticipation gets us off the couch or out of the cave or whatever to say, go get the food. That driven quality, again, here this goes back to movement. That driven quality, there's nothing pleasurable about that. It's it it's restless, it's contracted, it says, you know, you're not satisfied, do something. Yet in modern day, you know, marketers are like, hey, we can actually use this to sell products. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? And so somewhere in history, that excited, driven, contracted quality of experience became equated with happiness. Good. It moved from eudaimonia, you know, which yep. is the peaceful quality of existence, to this driven uh you know, movement quality. And somebody slapped a label on that and said, that's happiness. You know, anticipating a kiss, that's happiness. Getting on a roller coaster, you know, that's happiness. <laughs> but really, it's just a survival mechanism. And we see this in modern day. You know, we, we learn to eat food when we're stressed or anxious, not when we're hungry. We learn to look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram when we're bored, as compared to getting curious and exploring what boredom feels like itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I flash on here, Jez, is that several things. One is this kind of foundational um, evolutionary mechanism that really is essential for um, our development you know, to the point where we can actually evolve to question um, things like this. To me, what I, what I flash on, I'm wondering how this lands with you, is that we have this kind of biological imperative to uh, obviously attain food, to protect form. I want to return to that in just a second. 
But what, what I flash on here is that then what happens is this, this um, f- notion of food itself becomes a kind of um, archetype where now what we're doing is it's not just biological um, satisfaction, urges of satiation, you know, satisfying through um, literally ingestion of, of, of food of, of, um, to keep our bodies alive. But food occurs in so many different forms, you know, mm. and that basically um, entertainment is a, is a type of food. Distraction is a type of food. Yeah. And in this case, getting in this a bunch case, of likes on Instagram is a type yeah, of food. Exactly. And, and so what happens is, you know, we're in a certain way, this, this, and this, I think this is super important to understand because what I do is I riff on the same thing from an integral perspective when I talk about things like fear, that, that fear is a very, very sound biological evolutionary um, kind of imperative that keeps us alive, protects form. But at a certain point, when you want to go from form to formless, the very fear that got us to this evolutionary point now starts to retard. Evolution transforms into devolution. So to me, doesn't it make sense to say that this idea of food, therefore, can be applied to anything that at this point feeds the ego? And, And I would say that this would be the basis of the obesity epidemic, that we're actually eating the menu instead of the meal, we're, we're running after substitute gratifications instead of the real thing, and therefore we get this wildly consumeristic culture that basically is devouring the world's natural resources and fundamentally destroying it. So do you think it's fair to make that type of extrapolation um, to... Yes, and I would add that never before in history have we been able to engineer and refine substances and experiences in this in the way that we know because we know how this process works so this can be exploited so you know coca leaves not addictive cocaine very addictive yeah Uh, you know uh, social media has engineered you know and facebook didn't really take off until they introduced the like button you know, it was it was growing, but it started growing exponentially when everybody got addicted because of the likes. So those are just a couple of examples. But I think the you know the f- obesity epidemic is a great one because we see how food has been consistently engineered to have that perfect balance of fat and sugar and salt to get people craving more as compared to providing the calories that that they need. And then so how maybe this is where we can return to functional decoupling. So talk to us then a little bit more about with the armamentarium of meditation and what you've discovered in your lab. um, How can we now most effectively work with these cravings, with these urges? Yeah. So let's start with the neurobiology and then get practical. So neurobiologically, what we find consistently with across all meditation traditions that we've studied is that the default mode network gets quiet, gets deactivated with meditation. And so in essence, we're, we're letting go, we're getting out of our own way. And experientially, that is described commonly. I would say the most common language that I've found is just opening. So I love your yeah. definition of meditation, habituation to openness, if I got that right. Yep. Because opening you know, if, if we open and open and open and we start to lose that sense of where we end and the rest of the universe begins, then we move into non-duality or mm-hmm. if you want to 
talk psychological terms, this is what Csikszentmihalyi described as flow, you know, selfless, it's effortless, you know, basically resting in awareness. So with meditation, we see a nice correlation with brain mechanisms in terms of, you know, quieting the default mode network, which you know, is a correlate of the self-referential processing. And experientially, if we take a habit perspective or a addictions perspective, awareness itself can help us dial into our direct experience and use it as feedback. So we as humans learn best from feedback. If we notice what it feels like to be contracted or closed down, and importantly, we need to compare that to something else because our brains don't just change behavior. You know, we don't change behavior without a comparison. Our brains are, there's actually a whole network of brain regions. Uh, one of the hubs of that is the orbitofrontal cortex that kind of determines and stores reward value. Right. I think of it as the BBO part of the brain. It's always looking yeah. for the bigger, better offer. So if we, if all we know is the contraction of excitement and we think of that as our highest level of happiness, we're never going to change. But if we bring awareness and we use meditation or just awareness to notice, oh, what are the subtle aspects of, of closed downness or contraction? And then we can compare that to openness, whether we're yeah. practicing loving kindness or compassion or simply resting in awareness or we're tr fully concentrated even on an object. That gives us that bigger, better offer because it feels better when we're more open, when we're out of our own way. So in that sense, it helps us, you know, that awareness helps us move from closed to open and repeat that process every time we can directly dial in and see the cause and effect relationship. Um, we've even tested this clinically. We, you know, we started developing mindfulness training for habit change, like with smoking. So we did our first study with smoking cessation. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and then we said, um, you know, had this realization that people don't learn to be addicted in my office, you know, in their, in their physicians or their therapist's office. So we said, well, can we actually use this in a way that's more helpful for them? People learn things in context that so we can bring this to, can we bring this to context? So about five years ago, we started developing app-based mindfulness training programs and specifically developed one for eating to help people recognize what it feels like when they overeat, what it feels like when they eat a bunch of junk food, and what it also feels like, what that freedom feels like when they naturally stop when they're full. And we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We published a paper on that a couple of years ago with our, our app called Eat Right Now. And so here we see this, this stepwise process where people start to be able to map out these habit loops and then start to really see clearly what the non-reward is from being closed down so that they become disenchanted. And in Theravada Buddhism, they talk a lot about you know, exploring gratification to its end. Right. Once that's explored, we become disenchanted because we see you know, there's no juice in that thing anymore. And then we can start to compare that to awareness practices. And that bigger, better offer naturally leads us toward those. Uh, we even did a focus group with one of our, with one of our eating 
uh, groups and, you know, had them define for us what this process was. And this last part of the process they described as basically the, um, <laughs> it's, it's amazing, freedom of choice that emerges uh, out of out of embodied awareness. Beautiful. And so there's this effortless quality of experience that naturally, where they naturally start to move away from old behaviors. I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Somebody in our program, in our Eat Right Now program, had said, you know, that she was on the phone with somebody and was was angry, and she got she borrowed money from her son, got in the car, drove to McDonald's, she got into the parking lot, and she stopped and said, what am I going to get from this, right? Dialing into our previous experience. And she's like, I'm eating because I'm going to eat because I'm angry. <laughs> and yeah. in that moment, the bubble popped, you know, and she woke up, she became lucid, so to speak. Yep. And she realized exactly. I'm not going to get anything from this. And she turned around and went home and she said it was completely effortless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that is exactly the way this ties into what we're exploring with dreams. Again, we're just using dreams as a way to study the nature of, of mind altogether. Several things came to mind here, Judson, that, that I think um, I love to bounce off of you. One is I, I reflected on this maxim that I came up a little while back that very often we, we confuse the satisfaction of craving. We confuse the satisfaction of desire with its temporary transcendence. In other words, we, we think we're happy when we get what we want, but fundamentally, what's happening is we're we're happy when we stop wanting. And so, yeah. so you know, this is what what I mentioned earlier. Now we start, you know, we're no longer eating the menu. We're we're really looking at what it is. It's no longer a substitute gratification. Now we're looking at the actual mechanics behind the process. And just like this person who went to McDonald's and, and was realizing, okay, what am I fundamentally really after? And so, this is also a type of bardo yoga. A, a, a a, a gap practice where understanding this in this kind of really elegant um, scientific phenomenological map empowers us to to hit the pause button where we are going along swept up in the continuum we're completely non-lucid to experience um, caught up in our habits and of course habit is just a western word for karma and then all of a sudden something will ping into our awareness where we actually hit the pause button we stop and we realize, okay, wait a second here. What am I fundamentally really after? And then to me, um, Judson, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. The fundamental gift of these um, awareness practices, in my experience, um, is that fundamentally, if you take them to their completion, it's it profoundly liberating and really, in the deepest sense, detoxifying from our addictions to um, form to materialism to movement, all the things we're talking about is that these practices eventually allow you to discover that awareness will come to prefer itself over any external object, over any substitute. And therefore, I mean, wow, does this like bankrupt the entire Western <laughs> materialistic agenda? I mean, yeah. what what does this do to the samsaric way of life? Um, so does this speak to you? Is this what you've experienced as well? Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.